If you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 7, verse 54. Acts chapter 7. We're going to finish uh, the. We're going to finish chapter seven and jump into chapter eight as well. Um, that sort of divide. One, we're going to see uh, Stephen, who spoke last week, uh, dying for his faith. But then, as chapter eight starts, how God uses that for His kingdom. So, if you would turn to Acts chapter seven, verse fifty-four, we'll go through eight eight. When they heard this. They were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there, giving, a, giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off the men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed Christ there. When the crowds heard of Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out, and many of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you that you can use anything to further your kingdom. Father, that is humbling. You can use anything, even me. And so I pray that you would get me out of the way. God, I pray that your Spirit would open our eyes to your Word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In the early part of the 1900s in China, there was what's called the Boxer Rebellion, where hundreds of foreigners were killed, including about 250 missionaries, missionary children, as well as 20,000 or more Chinese Christians who were considered traitors to the citizens of China. Now, at that time, it was true. Missionaries were guilty of certain sins. They had legal privileges, colonial tendencies that oppressed China. They even had spats between denominations. So yes, there was plenty that they were doing wrong. But also, these missionaries had brought schools, hospitals, clinics, famine relief. They pushed to end the opium trade. They defended abuse against young girls and much more. However, that wasn't enough. And when the Communist Party in 1951 and 1952 expelled the last missionaries from China, so in that 50-year period, slowly they pushed all of the missionaries out. By 52, they were all gone, and the missionaries thought they had failed. This had been one of the 
main missionary fields, and all of a sudden, all Western missionaries and all missions was gone. In their eyes, they had failed. But what's interesting, starting in the 1920s, so before all the missionaries had been taken out, there was a very healthy development of Christian-led movements. Some of, their famous, some of the famous names are John Sung and Watchman Nee, among others, who led the charge to spread the gospel in independent churches. And so later, when missionaries began to come back to China in 1970s and 1980s, they found thriving churches where the government had said that the church had been completely wiped out. The government said there are no Christians in this area. When missionaries came back in the 80s, they found churches, thriving churches. Congregations of thousands and different house churches all over. It amazed the Western world. They couldn't understand. But God had preserved and spread His church. And in fact, in one of the books written by one of these Chinese Christians, he said, look, missions has gone all the way around the world to China. He said, now it's our responsibility to take it through the Middle East back to Jerusalem. He saw it as the gospel circumnavigating the globe. Not only are they becoming Christians... They were sending missionaries out. While to Western missionaries, it seemed like all was lost, that everything had failed, God was working under the surface when no one saw it. What we're learning today is that we should look for a sovereign God working in the most difficult of circumstances because the gospel preached, the gospel was preached, and the church spread during times of persecution. If you recall from earlier, Stephen in last chapter, or in this, in this, in earlier in this chapter, gave a speech, and the thrust was, do not reject God's deliverer. He went through the history of Israel, and he said, don't make the same mistake they did. Do not reject the Christ. And if you move even a little back further, you'll recall that the church kept growing, both spiritual maturity, but also numerically, through persecution, through discipline, and through preaching. But if you move even further back, To chapter 1, you'll remember, right before Jesus went up to heaven, in Acts 1, verse 8, this is what he said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And up until this point, everything we've been reading centers on Jerusalem. The church had remained there. And what we see happening here is God gives the church a little nudge in an unexpected way. In a way they certainly wouldn't have expected it. But when you step back, You can see God's plan. So if you still have your Bibles open, look with me at chapter 7. Start in verse 54 through the beginning of verse 1. First, here we see the death of a witness. And that witness is Stephen. The reason I say witness, the word martyr that we use, is actually to give testimony, to to witness, to, to bear witness about something or someone. So when we talk about a martyr, as far as a Christian martyr goes, what they are doing is they are bearing witness, bearing testimony about their faith. And what they are saying is, you can take my life away, but I will hold to this faith no matter what. The word martyr in our, in our minds has changed today as somebody who's willing to kill others sometimes for the sake of the gospel. That's not what we see from Christians. They're willing for other people to take their life because their faith is more important to them than even their life. And that's what we see here from Stephen. First, we see the extent of the rejection of these people. If you look at verse 54, it says that they were angry. Literally in the Greek, it's they were cut to the heart and they were gnashing their teeth. 
Now, when we read gnashing of teeth, it's, it's kind of weird language, but the idea is, you find it in the Psalms and you find it in Job, the idea is clenched teeth. Is, oh, they're just so mad. They can't believe he would say something like this. And we see them covering their ears and yelling, trying to cover up his words. And it's ironic because earlier, Stephen had said that they had uncircumcised ears. And what do you, do you remember what Christ would say often at the end of a parable? He who has ears... Let him hear. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 15, he says, This people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. They are covering their ears because they refuse to listen to the Word of God. Here's what's amazing. The people of Israel showed us this. You can come to church 10, 20, 30, 40 years, sit in a pew, and your mind be a million miles away. Hear the words and not let them sink. Feel that stirring in your heart, but reject the Holy Spirit. That's what we see from people here. That's what we saw from people who listened to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, speak. It's not us. It's not my power that can convince people. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. So I'd encourage you, even before we go on, in your heart, in your mind, ask the Spirit to open your heart, to open your mind, that our ears would hear what He has to say, that He would transform our hearts, that we would heed the warning of Stephen to not do that. In fact, the story of a, of a man named Jim Dixon, it, it, he, his name came up at Presbytery this past week, of a man who was an elder. He was sitting in the choir loft when a girl came up to give her testimony. And God used that to transform his life. I would encourage you, as we listen today, let's come with fresh ears, asking that God would open our eyes and open our hearts. Let us not have uncircumcised ears, as he says here. Because what do we see these people do? If you look at verses 57 and 58, they rushed him, they dragged him, and then they stoned him. This is essentially mob justice. And not only do we see mob justice, but both in verse 58 and in verse 1, you see the presence of Saul. He shows that he is guilty. What's amazing is later, this man Saul, his name will become Paul, and he will become one of the main Christians. But he's not afraid to show his past sins and how he was guilty. He is guilty, not just by association, but he was there. He is transparent about his past guilt, about his past sin. And yet... That rejection of the gospel and and this persecution that we see is not enough to make the witness's testimony null or to erase it. If you look at verse 55, Stephen's not done. First of all, we see that he is full of the Holy Spirit. Remember, in chapter 6, verse 3, this was one of the qualifications for being a deacon. To be a deacon, you had to be filled with the Spirit. And he is. But what does the Spirit do? Why is... John talking about the Holy Spirit so much as we go through the book of Acts. One of the reasons is because it's popping up everywhere. But the other reason is oftentimes we forget. Romans 8, 26 says, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Not only is the Spirit with you, God with us. The Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, prays for you. Take comfort in that. In those times of despair, the times that you feel alone, the times of frustration, maybe even against God's church, the Holy Spirit 
prays for you. Stephen knew that. He was full of the Spirit, it says here. Verse 55 and 56, what's amazing is God grants him a vision of Christ. It vindicates his claim. Everything he's been saying about Jesus, God shows him a little picture into heaven and he realizes that it's true. He sees the glory of God. This is a theme in the Old Testament that was absolutely essential. No one could enter the presence of God. The glory of God was just, it, it, it was in the most holy place, and yet Stephen gets to see it. And what does he see when he looks? He sees the Son of Man. I want to pause here before we rush through this. In the book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Revelation, it talks about this Son of Man title. In fact, when Jesus talked about Himself, this was His favorite term. This was the one that He used most often. Now, in the Bible, when it's talking about humans, it uses the term Son of God. Uh, It it would do it in, 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 in the Psalms and things like that. When it's saying here the Son of Man, in the book of Daniel... It says the Son of Man would come down on the clouds. The Son of Man would be worshipped by all the people. In the Jewish context, this was referring to divinity. You see, Jesus was both fully God and fully man. And in the Jewish context, when Jesus called Himself the Son of Man, they realized that He was talking about Daniel. And here, when Stephen says, I see the Son of Man, he, they knew they were, he was talking about Jesus, and they knew that he was talking about the Son of Man who would come on the clouds from Daniel 7. And in Revelation, it culminates this, and it talks about Jesus coming in glory and reigning. Christ is at the right hand of the Father. What's amazing is these very words is what got Jesus killed, according to Luke 22, verse 69. Don't miss the importance of this. For Stephen, he recognized and he knew Jesus was God. When we talk about our Savior, Jesus Christ, this is not just a man. This is not just a good teacher. This is God incarnate who came to this earth for you and for your salvation. Not only so, but we see Him imitate Christ's forgiveness. Look at verse 60. He asks that they would be forgiven. Where have we heard that before? In Luke chapter 23, verse 33, when Jesus Christ Himself was being killed, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified Him along with the criminals, one on His right, one on His left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This prayer, forgive them, even in the, while they are killing Him. We see in Jesus, we see here in Stephen, Later on, there's a record. James, the brother of Jesus, the one who wrote the book of James, was also killed. He would go to the temple and would pray for the forgiveness of people. And then people began to expect that Jesus Christ would come again. And the Pharisees started a riot. And in the midst of this riot, he stopped them. And he talks about the Son of God sitting in heaven and coming again. So what did they do? They stoned James. And in the midst of them stoning, he asked God that he would forgive them. How many times have you been insulted? Do you beg God to forgive others when they insult you? This is the highest insult, so to speak. Death. And yet they are begging that God would forgive them. A famous term in the early church was, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What people expected to happen was that when persecution occurred, when they were trying to squelch Christianity, that it would be gone and it would be erased from the face of the earth. And any testimony about this Jesus person would be gone. But we see that just the opposite happens. People saw Stephen die. 
They saw him standing up for their faith. They saw someone who was willing to give up everything. And they said, I want to have faith like that man. And so what do we see? In verses 1 through 8, we see the spread of the gospel. First, it talks about the extent of persecution. The second part of verse 1 says that there was a great persecution and then all but the apostles were scattered. And where were they scattered to? Judea and Samaria. Now, we're unsure of why the apostles stay. It may, stayed, it may have been a sense of duty for the church there in Jerusalem. They may have felt protected from persecution, which doesn't seem likely from what we've read early in the book of Acts. Or it may even have been a disregard for Christ's command, where He said, you will go to Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. We don't know. Eventually, we'll see that they go. But we see there's this persecution that happens, and so the people of God start scattering. They start spreading. And what we see also is that there's devout men that bury Stephen. Here's what's amazing. These men who buried Stephen are essentially saying, I'm with that guy. It's an act of defiance against the Jews. And this lamenting this morning was something that could have gone from 30 days to 70 days. So this wasn't just a, I'm sorry that he's died. They were grieving for at least a month, if not more, publicly, recognizing, I have the same faith as that guy. Also, we see uh, Saul beginning to destroy the church. Remember, this is not the building. Rather, he's going house to house, system method, methodically, systematically, killing or putting in prison not only men, but also women. We see that it's authoritative. He put them in prison under the authority of the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees have said, yes, put him in prison. And we also see it's predetermined. If you remember, Saul had a teacher whose name was Gamaliel. And in chapter 7, Gamaliel had said, don't persecute the church. Don't do it. If this is from God, you're going to find yourself fighting against God. Don't do it. But Saul ignores what his teacher had called him to do and instead starts persecuting the church, putting men and women in prison. But what's amazing is later in his life, when he became a Christian, he regretted this time of persecution. He regretted it. He would call himself the worst of sinners because of some of the things that he did. In 1 Timothy 1-16, he says, For that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners... Christ might display His unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe in Him and receive eternal life. Paul is essentially saying, you think you're the worst of sinners? You ain't seen nothing. He killed Christians. And yet God forgave him. So first we see the extent of persecution. Next we see the effect of persecution. What's amazing is persecution had the opposite of its intended effect. Effect. Because persecution correctly handled by the church can turn the tide. In verse 4, we see that the gospel was scattered. That word should throw up flags and ring bells in your mind. In Matthew chapter 13, when it talks about the parable of the sower, what does it say about the seed? That it was scattered. And it's, there's different results wherever it went. If you remember Matthew 13, we, this is what we preached on at Bon Clarkin. There's some seed that's snatched up and never grows. There's some seed that begins to grow, but is choked out by the worries or by persecution. And there's other seed that gives fruit and reproduces. What's also amazing, look there at chapter 8, verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The English translations, I wasn't able to find one that I liked super well on this verse. And here's why. The way it actually goes is those who scattered 
as they passed through. So it's not even at whenever they would stop at the grandmother's house or something like that. As they were passing through the towns, and as they were trying to escape this persecution, they give the good news. But giving the good news is one word. The, the reason we named our daughter Evangeline, that means giving, it's the gospel of good news, and it's the process of giving it. But it's giving the gospel of good news, and it's giving the word. Where do you find the good news? In the word of God. Everywhere they were going. They had plenty on their mind. They had just run away from home to escape persecution. Our first thought would be that they were trying to find shelter, they were trying to find a place to live, a new job. But what are they doing as they're scattering, as they're passing through? They're giving the good news of Jesus Christ. That should blow your mind. How do we use our time passing through the grocery store? Passing through each other's houses? Do we do it spreading the good news? And then they give us a small geographic sample. It talks about Philip. If you remember, this was likely the deacon that was described earlier. It might even be the Apostle Philip. But one of the places that he goes is Samaria. Now, you've heard this from a million different sermons, but Samaria was a place that Jews didn't like. They were considered half-breeds. They were rejected by the Jews. But what's amazing is part of Christ's command was to go to Samaria. And we also see Jesus Himself going to Samaria. In Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the purpose of why it was so countercultural was the person who was giving grace, who was showing mercy, was not a Jewish Pharisee or a Jewish Levite, but a Samaritan. Jesus Himself recognized the Gospel was for them. But also, in John chapter 4, Jesus goes to the woman at the well in a Samaritan town and starts telling the gospel. He had already begun this process of sharing the gospel with this rejected, and I do mean rejected, people group. Jesus began his ministry to this demographic. It was for them as much as for anyone else. And what do we see? Miraculous signs and healings, the work of the Spirit. Unclean spirits were cast out. The paralyzed and the lame were healed. And because of these signs, what does it say? They all paid close attention to what he said. The exterior healings, the casting out of the Spirit, was signs of an interior, internal healing. And what is the result? There's joy in the city. Remember, in chapter 4, there were crowds praising God because a paralyzed man of 40 years old was able to walk. I want us just to end on this idea of joy. Joy is a priority throughout the book of Luke. If you look for the word joy in the book of Luke, it is everywhere. But this is the first time it's mentioned in the book of Acts. Joy is not happiness. Rather, it's contentment. It's not based on your circumstances. It's not just about having a smile on your face. It's lasting. John Piper describes it, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul. I didn't even feel like that was good enough. Produced by the Holy Spirit as He causes us to see, listen carefully, the beauty of Christ in the Word and in the world. Joy does not look at our present circumstances. Joy does not look at our difficulties. Joy looks to God. In our psalm study, what we've been talking about joy, we've seen in the beginning, sometimes the psalmist just starts with despair and anguish. Where are you, God? But then he looks to the character of God, who He is. And that helps him realize that he is dependent on the God who controls everything. 
What does Philippians 4 say? Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your joy be evident to all. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplications, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. The amount of joy that appears in that passage is astounding. It's a command. We are called to rejoice. Do our faces reflect the inner reality that you have been saved by grace? These people were filled with joy when they first heard the gospel. God uses the preaching of the word to purify and to grow his church. God uses church discipline to purify and grow his church. Today we see God uses persecution to purify and grow his church. I'm not going to say that the days are coming. They might be, they might not. Those are entirely in God's hands. It's certainly going on around the world today. What I can say is look to Christ. Think on our definition of joy. Look at the example of Stephen and these martyrs. They're people who constantly look to Christ, not just at the moment of their lives, but daily. And the reason they are able to look to Christ at the time of their death is because they did it daily. And because they looked to Christ daily, they didn't focus on their circumstances around them. They focused on Jesus Christ. Look to Him. Depend on His Spirit. And you will see God's sovereignty, God's control, even in the most dire of circumstances. The Bible doesn't promise us all the answers to these difficult questions. What He promises us is a companion. God with us. I pray that we take great comfort in that fact. And that we have hope in Jesus Christ, King Jesus, who will come again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this day and we thank you for the example of Stephen. Father, we thank you for the example of these uh, who have come before us, who not only lived, but died for your name. Father, I'm humbled, but also sometimes it's harder to live for you. And God, I pray that your spirit would continually transform us. God, I pray that our daily walks and everywhere we go, that we would scatter the seeds of the gospel. I pray that you would remind us of those Christians who are even uh, suffering for your name now. And God, if ever the day comes for us, and it does in today's culture even, I pray that we would stand up not just for our preferences, that we wouldn't uh, just be uh, embarrassed about our faith, but rather that we would stand up regardless of what the consequences might mean for what true faith is and the true gospel preaching is, that we would stand up for what is true, for our relationship with Jesus Christ. We pray it in His name. Amen.